Now, as we've been working through Matthew, because Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in all of their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, along with healing every disease and every affliction among the people, that meant, as we have noted, that Matthew had quite a lot of material to choose from in order to make his main point in these chapters that Jesus is authoritative in both word and in deed. Now, with so many healings to choose from, why choose these ones? Why choose the ones that we have in Matthew 8 and 9? I mean, they're all quite surprising if you think about it. You've got an unclean leper. You've got, a de- you've got demon-possessed men. You've got women, a woman with a discharge, a young girl who had passed on, a mute demon oppressed man. None of these were the important high-ranking people of Jewish society. Quite far from it, actually. These were the people who, according to the ceremonial laws and the ritual laws found in Leviticus, actually defiled the land by their very presence in it making the land unclean. These people that are listed here are those who would have been considered by the Jewish populace as unworthy of such blessings, unworthy of such a hand, a compassionate hand from a rabbi. These instances of healing were performed on the outcasts and the misfits among the Jewish population. Matthew didn't record those healings that Jesus may have performed or extended to the rich or the powerful, and he may very well have performed a number of those. But instead, he focused here on those that society looked down upon. And it's not different on this day as, look at it, a centurion approaches Jesus. Matthew's gospel leaves it simply at that. Verse, chapter 8, verse 5. A centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. While the centurion that approaches Jesus was uh, indeed a man with some level of status in the Roman world, he was still, from the Jewish perspective, a filthy, unclean Gentile. And even more than that, he was a filthy, unclean Roman Gentile military officer. Now, centurions, these centurions were the experienced Roman soldiers of the day. day. And they were put in charge of roughly 100 military men. We get our word, like century is 100 years. Centurion is at the head of 100 ready combatants. And these centurions, along with the squads that they were stationed in different regions throughout the Roman Empire with, were tasked with keeping the peace in the region. And for the most part, by their very presence, by, simply by their presence in an area, this constituted all the people need, needed to go about their business without raising any trouble. However, in certain regions, in certain towns, and in certain cities, there were consistently rebellions, minor rebellions, minor riots, minor protests. And centurions there put down these rebellions, and oftentimes they were quite brutal in their suppression of these rebellions. To the Jew, 
The centurion represented oppression. The nation of Israel had, for the longest time, been under the power and subjection of one foreign nation after another. For a time, they found themselves under the rule of Alexander the Great, the Greek leader who had amassed one of the more impressive geographical empires in the world. And after Alexander came the Seleucids, and eventually a man named Antiochus came to the head of the Seleucid Empire, and he wanted to make his own name great. And so in an effort to make his own name great, he sought to eradicate Jewish faith and practice. And seeking to establish Greek and Roman religions throughout his lands, he descended upon Jerusalem, and he ordered all Jewish temple services, all Jewish temple sacrifices, and all Jewish temple ceremonies cease. He ordered that the Hebrew Scriptures be burned. He ordered that the Jewish holy days and observances and festivals be outlawed. He even banned the observing of the Sabbath. He took over the Jewish temple. He stripped the temple of all of its gold. He removed the altar and switched it for an altar to Zeus. And to add further insult, he sacrificed a pig on the altar in the holy place of the temple. And he ordered that shrines and altars be established all throughout Jerusalem. And he required the Jews on pain of torture and death to bow down and offer sacrifices to these gods. The Jews, for many centuries, languished under the domineering oppression of different empires, experiencing and enduring varying degrees of oppression like that under the Seleucids. But over time, the Seleucids were replaced by yet another empire, and that is the Romans. And here, once again, the Jewish peoples found themselves under the iron rule of a seemingly insurmountable enemy, Rome. And to the Jew, the centurion represented Roman oppression. The centurion was a constant reminder of the fact that a foreign power ruled over the land of Jerusalem, the land that every Jew believed was and is theirs by birthright. And during these days, messianic fever ran high among them as they waited for, as they hoped for, as they prayed for a Messiah to arrive on the scene, the Messiah to arrive on the scene. The Messiah that would take the mantle of leadership in Israel and bring the Jewish peoples to a unified state behind him as they lined up and he would lead them into battle against the Romans and once again liberate Israel. This Messiah, they believed, would secure victory, would secure liberty for the people of Israel and under his rule, the sons of the kingdom. You see that phrase in verse 11, 12, the sons of the kingdom, meaning the Israelites, would enjoy the abundant blessings promised to them in the covenants. They would sit at the table of Abraham, feasting with him, along with Isaac and Jacob, while all of these unclean Gentiles who oppressed them were cast out into the outer darkness. But the ones who were tasked with ensuring that no Jewish leader rose up and led the Israelites against Rome, the ones who were tasked with making sure that didn't take place were the centurions. 
these Roman military officials. These centurions stood in the path. They stood in the way of Israel achieving her main objective, freedom in the land. It is one of these, one of these centurions that approached Jesus on that day. The centurion, the Roman soldier tasked with enforcing Roman rule in Jerusalem. The centurion, the one who labored to ensure that Roman authority remained steady and in place over the Jewish peoples. The centurion, the one who made sure that Rome extracted her tax dollars from the Jewish peoples. And the Jewish peoples hated paying these taxes because those taxes went towards paying for the centurions who stayed over them. These taxes went towards maintaining the very military forces that kept them subject. The centurion, a consistent reminder that they aren't free, that they are occupied by a foreign power. The centurion was a member of the occupation, symbolizing and reminding Israel of her situation, of her current reality as a nation under the thumb and the power and the rule of a foreign nation. And yet, as this centurion approached Jesus... A number of the people around him might have assumed that Jesus would know all of this and that Jesus would respond appropriately to the oppressor, to the Roman centurion approaching Jesus on that day. But Jesus didn't turn his back on this man. In fact, if you look at it, Jesus didn't look at him with disgust. Jesus didn't say, sorry, Mr. Oppressor, I can't help you. No. Jesus actually made a rather surprising offer in the text, doesn't he? Look at chapter 8, verse 7. I will come and heal your servant. See, the centurion approached Jesus, telling him that his servant was lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And now based on the the words that the centurion uses here to refer to his servant, it would seem that this centurion cared quite deeply for this servant. Because this is not the generic term for slave used here, but is instead a a softer term, a more affectionate term, used to refer to someone under his employ that he cared about, someone the centurion cared for almost like he would a son. You see, centurions in this day were paid very well by Rome for their service, but they were forbidden to marry. They were forbidden to start a family during their 20-year enlistment. And also, for the most part, they kept and maintained strict boundary lines between themselves and the men in their charge, often foregoing friendships with those that they led in order to make discipline and correction as it was needed much easier. So the life of a centurion was oftentimes a solitary and lonely one. And based on the centurion's choice of words to refer to this young servant lying paralyzed at home and suffering, it would seem that this slave might constitute the closest thing that this centurion has to family. 
which caused this centurion to approach Jesus with his request. Now, none of this would matter to a Jewish leader. This is a Roman centurion. And a good Jew walks on the other side of the road. A good Jew avoids this man. A good Jew Jew forgets men like this. A good Jew, if they could, would spit at their feet. In fact, there was a whole faction of Jews called the Zealots who made it their life goal to stab men and kill men like this. But Jesus, however, is not bound by societal rules. Jesus is not bound by the conventions of Jewish leaders. Jesus is not straight-jacketed by the expectations of the people. You see, our Lord touched the leper. While the Jews of the day were filled with prejudices against lepers, while the Jews of, their, of this day were filled with ethnic prejudice and brimming with self-exaltation and pride over, every, over and against everyone they saw as lesser status than they, you see the heart of our Lord Jesus here as one that helps, as one that heals, as one that saves, as one that redeems people from this world. Jesus, our Lord, came to seek and to save the lost. And nothing, not ethnicity, not nationality, not social class, not cultural differences, not shortcomings, not disabilities, not station in life, None of these present any obstacle to Christ's saving and compassionate love. It's a love that extends even to this unclean Gentile centurion. It's a love that extends to this man who in the eyes of the Jewish peoples was a symbol of oppression. But now look at the details of the narrative. Go back to verse 5. It says, when he had entered Capernaum, that's Jesus. When Jesus entered into Capernaum, this is, this is the place Jesus made his hometown. We see that back in Matthew 4.13, where it says he went and lived in Capernaum. And later in Matthew chapter 11, we will note that Capernaum is a, is a town that is marked by unbelief. The Jews who lived in Capernaum were sternly rebuked in Matthew 11 by Jesus as heading for a judgment that will be worse, that will be harsher than that of even Sodom. But contrast the unbelief, the Jewish unbelief in Capernaum with the centurion who approaches Jesus on this day. This Roman officer made his way to Jesus not to make any commands, not to force Jesus to carry his military regalia, not in any sort of haughty or arrogant manner. No, he approached Christ in humility and he appealed to him. Appealed here means he urged Jesus, he implored Jesus, he begged Jesus for help. The word here means to express one's complete dependence upon or submission to a higher authority figure. This is the attitude of this centurion towards Jesus. And the issue, the issue that brings the centurion to Jesus to implore him, his servant, lying paralyzed at home and suffering terribly. His servant was crippled. His servant could not use his legs, couldn't walk. But not only that, 
Coupled with the inability to walk, the servant experienced severe pain. The centurion's servant was tormented with an unbearable pain. He was anguished and in agony, or as the King James Version puts it, he was grievously tormented by pain. And Jesus' response to the centurion is quite surprising. Verse 7, I will come and heal him. I will come and heal him. Now, from our vantage point, we read that, right? And we say, of course. Of course Jesus would have done that. I mean, he's Jesus. This is the one God sent to save us. I wouldn't expect that Jesus would do anything differently. But according to the social conventions of the day, according to the expectations of this time, an observant Jew would never enter the home of an unbelieving Gentile. Because they considered such people unclean and didn't want to contract that uncleanness themselves. So they simply avoided entering Gentile homes altogether. And we can see this in a few instances in the New Testament. For example, as the Jews brought Jesus to Pilate to accuse him, the text tells us that they wouldn't enter Pilate's house. And so Pilate had to go outside to speak with the Jews. Look at what it says in John 18, 28 and 29. It says, Then they, that's the Jewish leaders and officers, led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them. Oh, the hypocrisy of that text. They arrested Jesus. They accused Jesus, an innocent man. They drummed up lies against Jesus and created deceptive words against him in an effort to see him killed at the hands of the Romans. But these same fellows wouldn't enter into the house of the governor. They wouldn't enter into the house of the governor out of fear that they might become defiled and not able then to partake of the Passover. It's okay to condemn an innocent man to death, but no, 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 no. We do not enter into the house of an unclean Gentile. This is the level of hypocrisy that was evident and practiced in Israel in this day. And the Apostle Peter, and just take a step back, can we just all make it a point to do all that we can to avoid being hypocrites like this. Hypocrisy is something that every single one of us can easily slip into. And when you see it written like this, it, it drums up something in you, doesn't it? It agitates me. I don't want to be a hypocrite. You don't be a hypocrite. Let's just make it a, let's make a deal. Let's try all of us not to be hypocrites. I think that would be good, right? Yeah, yeah. But back to the text here. The Apostle Peter also, in Acts chapter 10, an angel of the Lord came to him and told him to visit the house of Cornelius. Now, Cornelius was also a Gentile centurion. Now, when you read the New Testament, you'll, you'll note that we are, uh, we are introduced to a number of centurions, and almost every single time the centurion is, given, is, is uh, displayed in a positive light. It's quite surprising. But Peter was told by an angel to go to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile centurion. And Peter kind of wanted to resist at first. But the Lord told him to go. And then Peter 
after he got the vision of the animals coming down on the, on the tarp, used that to teach others, saying this in Acts chapter 10, 28. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So Peter entered into the home of Cornelius and spent time with Cornelius. And this got him into trouble. This got Peter into trouble because after he obeyed the Lord in the visiting of Cornelius, he was then criticized by what we call the circumcision party. Circumcision party being those Jews who claimed that if you wanted to truly be a Christian, you had to become a Jew first, follow the Jewish laws, and then that would combine with your faith and you would be a Christian. And Acts chapter 11, verses 2 to 3, relates the incident. It says this, When Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So you see, the idea in this day is you simply do not go into the house of a Gentile. They are unclean. And here, these criticizers are simply parroting the words of the Mishnah, the Mishnah being a Jewish book that holds the arguments of the rabbis about how to explain and follow the laws of the Old Testament. They made this entire system of trying to figure out how to follow these laws. And in the Mishnah, it says this, the dwelling places of the Gentiles are unclean. Meaning, you just don't ever go into them. Peter came to understand the reality of Gentile repentance and Gentile inclusion into the family of God at a later time. And so what Jesus is doing here is happening well before Peter's vision and was relatively unheard of at this time. And he offered to go with the centurion. He offered to go to the centurion's home. Jesus offered to enter the house of one who was considered by the nation of Israel as an awful, awful sinner. He offered to enter into the house of a despised man in order to heal this man's servant. Now, if I were the centurion, if, I, if this was me, if I was that centurion, I'd assume that I'd have been more like the ruler who comes later in chapter 9, verse 18, who said, come and lay your hand on my daughter and she will live. But this centurion did something different. This centurion did some, said something, believed something that made even Jesus himself marvel at it. When he replied in chapter 9, verse 8, Lord... I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. So the centurion here, according to this text, knows a few things, or at least has an inkling about a few things. First, that Jesus is Lord in some sense. You see, this is significant because Romans, especially Roman military officers, did not approach a Jew and call that Jew Lord. 
And while he most likely does not grasp the identity of Christ as God come to us in the flesh, as God making his dwelling among us, as Christ being the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world, he does recognize that Jesus is special. And that the centurion chose the word Lord here is significant. While it's not a, a equivalent to an actual confession that Jesus is Lord overall. It is a term that indicates a high degree of respect. A term that understands that Jesus is not like other men. It indicates that this centurion knew that Jesus was worthy of respect and worthy of honor. And so this is the second time the centurion uses it in our text. This is the second time the centurion called Jesus Lord. Maybe... The centurion understood that Jesus was a representative of the Lord himself. One to whom authority had been given. And as a result, the centurion then realizes a second thing. That this Jesus is Lord. And that he is unworthy then to have Jesus come to his home. He is inferior to Jesus. Again, this is a Roman military leader, a Roman military official who has a hundred men under him who do whatever he says, and he comes to Jesus and recognizes that he is inferior to him, to Jesus. See, the Jews thought highly of themselves and quite often set themselves against Jesus exalting themselves over Jesus. But here comes this centurion who recognizes something and as a result acknowledges his unworthiness before Jesus. He understood his moral unworthiness. And as a centurion stationed in Capernaum, which is in a Jewish region, he most likely understood the Jewish mindset of Gentiles being unclean. This centurion must have been quite desperate to say such a thing to and about this itinerant Jewish preacher. Because in the same way the Jews thumbed their noses at Romans, Romans also thumbed their noses at Jews. Romans also had a high degree of pride over and against the Jewish peoples. And usually centurions hated being assigned to the Jewish regions of the empire. They hated the posts in these types of regions. And so if you think about it, the barriers and the cultural mindsets that are being set aside or outright ignored in this exchange between a centurion and Jesus are quite amazing. And thirdly, the centurion understood that Jesus possessed authority. That Jesus possessed authority over sickness to such a degree that Jesus didn't even need to visit this man's home, but only to say the word. Just say the word, Jesus, and my servant will be healed. This military man, who is both under authority and in authority, knows authority when he sees it. He recognizes authority when he encounters it. He knows that Christ's authority is such that physical Infirmities can't even resist it. Christ's orders, physical infirmities cannot resist Christ's order any more than the subordinates of this centurion can resist his orders. That's what he says in verse 9. 
He said, I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he does it, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. See, the centurion somehow knew that Jesus has been vested with a unique type and degree of authority from God. He understands or understood that Christ both speaks and acts with an authority, with an unheard of type of authority. He understands that Jesus is a representative of some authority that is far greater than his, his, than the centurion's. And so recognizing that fact, and again, knowing authority when he sees it, the centurion said, if I, a man with limited authority, under the, author, under the authorities, uh, authority of, those, of others who are above me, inspire the obedience of those under me by my very word and by my very command, if when I say to someone, go, they hop to it in obedience doing what I tell them to do, how much more you, Lord, by your authoritative word, by your even greater authority, how much more can you command even sickness to depart and it must obey your word? If you command by your word alone that paralysis and pain that my servant is enduring must flee. It must obey your word and leave. When I as a centurion command, the soldiers obey, but your authority is different. It is of a greater degree. It is of a greater quality in that when you command, creation itself must obey. And so the centurion openly declares and openly states his complete trust and his complete faith in Christ's power and authority. Only say the word, and my servant will be healed. It's almost as if the centurion said, you are the one with true authority, and I recognize it, submit to it, and ask you to command by the word of your power that the pain and paralysis of my servant might be driven away. And it's almost unprecedented what he asks Jesus to do. He asks Jesus and trusts that Jesus can heal his servant over a large geographical distance without actually visiting that servant by his word alone. And note Jesus' response to the centurion's faith in verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled, he marveled, and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you that with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Now listen, the shock of this statement that a Roman centurion possessed a faith greater than any that Jesus had encountered up to this point in Israel ought not to be overlooked. Nowhere, Jesus is saying, nowhere in Israel has Jesus encountered a faith as strong as a faith of such quality in Israel. But instead, he found it in a Gentile. This made Jesus marvel. This astonished even Jesus. Jesus was amazed by this. He was impressed by the centurion's confidence in his authority. 
something that no one in Israel had yet recognized. It, it was a Gentile who recognized it first. Now, this is not to say that there were no Jews of faith in Israel. There were. But no one in Israel had expressed, according to Jesus, such a humble trust in the authority and the power of Christ as this Roman centurion did. So impressive was this centurion's faith that Jesus turned and looked at those who were following him, both his inner circle of disciples and to the curious but not so committed crowds that were following him around and said to them that this centurion possesses a faith greater than any Jew I've encountered. See it again in verse, chapter 8, verse 10? With no one in Israel have I found such faith. Not even in Israel, in spite of all of their spiritual advantages and privileges, have I found such faith. And this is surprising. It's surprising that it's a Gentile's faith that is found greater than any Israelites. And this is because Israel ought to have known They ought to have been preparing themselves for the arrival of Messiah. And based on everything recorded for them in their scriptures, they ought to have known that the Messiah would be marked by a most wonderful healing ministry. When the Messiah came, Isaiah prophesied that the eyes of the blind would be opened and the ears of the deaf would be unstopped and the lame should leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute would sing for joy. And Matthew makes it clear by abundantly clear by bookending these chapters of Matthew 5 and 9 with the exact almost word for word the exact same text and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction that's Matthew 4:23 at the beginning of the sermon on the mount and the healing and in Matthew 9:35 after the sermon on the mount and the healing Matthew is trying to indicate it to us. The Messiah has arrived. He's fulfilling the expectations of the prophets. His ministry is one that brings good news to the poor, that binds up the brokenhearted, that proclaims liberty to the captives and opens the prison to those who are bound and proclaims the year of the Lord's favor as Isaiah foretold. And if anyone... If anyone ought to have compared the words and the deeds of Christ against the prophetic declarations and words of Scripture and made the connection, it should have been Israel. But they didn't. And instead, as we will see over the next few chapters, instead of responding in faith and belief like this Gentile centurion did, they set out to question Jesus' authority. They questioned him, where do you get the authority to say and do the things that you do? And in one of the most hard-hearted and rebellious of statements in all of the New Testament, the Pharisees, instead of submitting themselves to Christ, instead of trusting in the power of Christ, began teaching the people of Israel that Jesus casts out demons by the prince of demons in Matthew 9.34. In essence, they missed their Messiah But not only did they miss him, they associated him with the demonic realm. What a contrast. What a contrast between Israel who ought to have known and this centurion. They 
ought to have been the ones who knew exactly who the Messiah was when he arrived. But surprisingly, they didn't. And even more surprising, once again, is the fact that it was a Gentile who picked up on the fact that Jesus is authoritative in contrast to Jewish leaders who said this same man was demonic. And this display of the centurion's faith led Jesus to make another stunning statement about the kingdom of heaven in verse 11. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. The idea here is there will be non-Jews who sit at the table. The centurion's story is good news for you and it's good news for me. Non-Jews will, by grace through faith in Christ, be given a seat at the banquet table. We too will enjoy the blessings of salvation. The doors of God's grace and mercy have been opened wide. Come one, come all, come to Christ in faith and in belief. And this is what the Old Testament had prophesied would happen. The Old Testament scriptures spoke of this day when Gentile inclusion, Gentiles would be included into the blessings of Israel's salvation. A few examples. Isaiah 2, 2 to 3, and Micah 4, 1 to 2 pretty much repeat this. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Isaiah also prophesied in chapter 25 that on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And the prophet Zechariah told of the day when peoples shall yet come. Even the inhabitants of many cities, the inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. And Malachi, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name, Yahweh, will be great among the nations. Throughout the Old Testament, it was foretold, according to the prophets, that the Gentiles would one day share in the blessings of salvation along with the patriarchs. However, the Jewish peoples tended to exclude and to despise the Gentiles rather than live as a light to the nations. Rather than drawing the nations in to see what life under the rule and the authority of God was like, they labored to keep people out. 
excluding not only Gentiles, but also everyone they deemed unfit for the blessings of the Lord. Even their very own countrymen at times were looked down upon and excluded if they did not follow every single menial rule as set out by the religious leaders. And Jesus, as he later pronounced a series of woes against these scribes and Pharisees, condemned this very practice in Matthew 23, 13, when he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. What a terrible practice to shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces by making extensive lists of extra-biblical rules and regulations for people who would seek the Lord. Impossible expectations for those who would enter in to follow. And this is a reminder to us in our day as well. We must be careful because we can too, just like the scribes and just like the Pharisees, begin adding our own personal convictions, preferences, and traditions to the Word of God. We can start getting all hot and bothered by those we don't think live as they ought to live. We can even go so far as to judge another's faith because they fail to live up to our man-made standards. This is the realm and the domain of the Pharisee. And the Pharisee shuts the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Woe to anyone. Woe to anyone who acts in such a manner. The Pharisees shut the door of the kingdom in people's faces by continually moaning and complaining about what they were against. Look at that guy. He doesn't give enough. Look at that guy. He's not as holy as I am. Look at that guy. He's not as... Fill in the blank. Continually moaning and complaining about what they were against, judging and condemning everyone around them for not reaching the standards that they had set rather than singing about and praising and honoring and exalting the Lord so that others might see his beauty and, sh- and join in. The Pharisees loved to argue. They loved to legislate everyone else's morality and decision-making. Again, not according to the express written word of God, but according to their own ideals. And they continually prodded and poked at other people for their sins while consistently denying their own sins and asserting their righteousness over against others. The Pharisees accepted others only insofar as they conformed to a certain lifestyle, certain set of rules, certain set of regulations. Not biblically mandated, but their own set of man-made rules. And when they were rebuked for this, they got angry. And they got offended. And they set themselves against the rebuker, insulting them. They tolerated serious sins, relegating them to the background while focusing on petty issues. These Pharisees had then assumed or fooled themselves into believing that this phony holiness, along with their ethnic heritage, guaranteed them a spot at this festive banquet with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You see, the blessings promised to Israel are here pictured as reclining together at a rich feast with the patriarchs. But Jesus contradicts the teaching of the rabbis who taught that this feast was only for the Jews and maybe a few proselytes like Ruth and maybe Rahab. Only the Jews, they taught, would enjoy this great and heavenly feast. 
Only the Jews would be invited to this messianic banquet that represented the ultimate blessedness of God's people. Only the Jews had the reservations on the seats. It was a Jewish celebration and non-Jews were cast out into the darkness. But do you see what Jesus did here? Jesus completely reversed that idea and made it clear that the guest list for this banquet is quite different than what the Jews are expecting, what these Jews are expecting. He says, many will come from the east and the west. Read into that, Gentiles, to enjoy and join in with these blessings. But not only that, Jesus continued, the sons of the kingdom, in verse 12, will be thrown into outer darkness. The sons of the kingdom here is a figure of speech that means simply Jews. Those who were expected to be heirs of the kingdom because of all of their privileges. Those who believed that by virtue of their ethnic heritage and bloodline that they were acceptable to God. But the biblical witness makes it clear, no one, no one, Jew or Gentile, is saved or excluded from the kingdom because of their ethnic heritage. Nope, the Gentiles who believe will sit at and enjoy this feast, as will all the Jewish peoples who believe, while all Gentiles and all Jewish peoples who do not believe will be excluded. And it must have come as quite a shock to hear that someone as despised as this centurion could, by faith, sit at the Messianic banquet table sharing the blessings of God to Israel while those who assumed they were invited, those who assumed that their seats were secure, were cast out because they rejected Jesus. Now what about those in our day who think that they are in? Who think that their seats in heaven or their seats at this banquet are reserved? For a number of reasons. We can be like the Jews in so many ways, right? Perhaps, you know, you grew up in the church. Perhaps you've just gone to church your whole life. My seat's reserved. Gone to the church. I've done the thing. I've served in the children's ministry and I've done this and I've done that and I've done this and I've done that. None of that matters. Do you have faith in Christ? Maybe your parents are believers and so you think, well, my parents are believers. I, that should be enough for me. No. Do you have faith in Christ? Maybe you say, I do good things. I do good things. God's going to accept me because when I stand before him, I, I will say I was a good person. Doesn't matter. Do you have faith in Christ? Maybe you like to compare and contrast yourself with people you think are bigger sinners than you. And because they are bigger sinners, you think somehow you're okay with the Lord. That doesn't matter. Do you have faith in Christ? Just because you grew up in the church, just because your parents are believers, just because you do good things, just because you are not as bad as somebody else does not mean that your seat is guaranteed. In fact, you could find yourself outside of this banquet. Because Jesus here corrects a common mistake for the Jews. Jewishness by itself guarantees nothing. And he corrects a mistake that we might make if we think, about relying on anything else other than faith in him. It is Abraham's children by faith that the Lord adopts into his family 
and those who reject Christ, no matter who they are, even if they are physical descendants of Abraham, are out and will have no seat at the table. None of their advantages, none of their covenants, none of their blessings can save them if they reject Christ. None of your relationships, none of your volunteerism, none of your good deeds, none of your ability to come off as better and more holy than somebody else will save you if you reject Christ. This is the reality for every human being on the planet. There is one way to be saved, by trusting in, truly believing in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And all who reject the offer of salvation held out to them by Christ, whether they are Jew or Gentile, look at verse 12, will be thrown into the outer darkness. So the banquet itself is presented as a well-lit and blessed banqueting table. Whereas outside of this well-lit area, there is darkness and outer darkness. And those who are thrown into the outer darkness are thrown far away from the blessed banqueting table. And note, they aren't simply thrown out into the darkness, but they're thrown to the outer darkness, meaning they're thrown to the most distant darkness, meaning they are expelled from the light of God's gracious presence, and instead they must dwell in the presence of God as holy and just, God who dispenses his perfect wrath against their rebellion, against their wickedness, and against their sin. This is what awaits all who reject Jesus. The place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is what it means to die outside of God's grace in Christ. It means unspeakable anguish in the pre- as the presence of God now means for you justice and wrath and the wages for your sin dished out. This place of weeping is populated by those who recognize that their folly who recognize their folly and they are now inconsolable because they live in never-ending wretchedness and total complete and everlasting hopelessness. All hope is removed and they weep endlessly. Jesus repeatedly warned all he could of this coming reality. Matthew, this is one of the themes that you'll see through Matthew, this idea of being cast out to the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a repeated warning throughout. For example, Jesus said later on, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This picture is repeated throughout Matthew in both instructional teachings like this but also as the culmination um, quite often of a number of parables. Not only will there be weeping in that place but there will also be gnashing of teeth as the recipients of God's just punishments receive and endure that punishment, it's a pain and a hopelessness that never ceases. It is eternal. It is conscious. And those who endure it lash out in anger. But this gnashing of teeth represents nothing more than a powerless rage. They can do nothing about their plight. They rebelled against the Lord and the penalty for such rejection is being cast out into this 
darkness where there is never-ending weeping and never-ending gnashing of teeth. So as you can see, in this, in this uh, narrative of the centurion, there is something far greater at stake here than the simple yet amazing healing, miracle of healing the centurion's servant from far away. The faith of this centurion provides us with a lesson on faith and salvation. And like the Jews who believed that they were in because of their heritage and ethnicity, but were actually in danger of being thrown into the outer darkness because they reject Jesus, what are you clinging to in belief that you will recline at the table and enjoy the banquet? If it's anything other than the grace of God accessed by faith in Christ, you too will be thrown out into the outer darkness. Are you clinging to your works? Are you clinging to your supposed righteousness as you compare yourself to others? Are you clinging to your ability to call out the errors of other people? Are you clinging to your ability to set a standard of righteousness, live up to that standard, and then judge everyone else who doesn't? What are you clinging to? Because there is only one thing you can cling to. Cling to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. He is the only name given among men by which we can be saved. Put your faith, <clears throat> like the Gentile here, like the centurion did, in the authority of Christ. And even... This unclean Gentile was commended by Christ for his faith. And as the centurion believed, Jesus said, In accordance with your belief, your servant is healed. And the servant was healed completely at that very moment. And the same is true for you. Put your faith in Christ, and by his word you will be healed. Not not physically necessarily, but spiritually healed. Your soul will be cleansed. Your soul will be perfected in the sight of God. Christ's perfect righteousness will be gifted to you and your seat will be reserved at the banquet. And Matthew's choice of the centurion to make this point indicates that the grace of Christ extends far and wide. So hear me. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, trust Christ and you will be saved. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ and for his mercy and his compassion and his grace. And we thank you for leading men in the power of your spirit to record such instances for us to glory in and to revel in for even for thousands of years now. I thank you for the, the story of Christ's mercy on this centurion and I thank you for all that it teaches us. I thank you that it shows us that our Lord Jesus Christ is one that we can trust in, that he is compassionate and that it's true. All who place their faith and trust in him even if they feel that they are undeserving, which is true, and they're unworthy, which is true, will be saved by our Lord Jesus upon faith in him. So thank you. Thank you for your word. And may it inspire us to hope. 
for those who need hope this week and for those who need exhortation, may it be an exhortation to them this week. I praise you in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.